started. Morning, Gloria America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway. And I'm holding up a book It's called The Soul of Politics. It's by Glenn Elmers, one of my guests on the Hillsdale Dialogue this week, along with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. And The Soul of Politics, which has begun to sell and sell like hotcakes, was written by Glenn Elmers when he was a fellow at Hillsdale College. Good morning to you both. It's great to have you both, Dr. Arn. I believe you had former Secretary of State Pompeo up in Michigan recently. Yeah, he was there on Monday night. Uh, it's uh, he's, He gave a big speech, and he's practicing, I think. Practicing? And, and was he well-received by the Hillsdale uh, rabble, the students, the, the polis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, a, there was a mighty crowd of students and off-campus people and faculty. And uh, there's a lot of interest in uh, the future because the present is so gloomy. So, yeah, there was a lot of people who turned out to see him. And he's, you know, he's a very talented guy. He's, uh, uh, it's, it's not a badge of honor that he was first in his class in, at Harvard Law School, but it is a badge of honor that he was first in his class at West Point. Yes. And, and, yeah, so, uh, yeah, and so... So yeah, I want to I tell people... Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I'm making you go, Dr. Arn. (laughs) We have to, uh, I said, you know, obviously we haven't figured out how to save our country yet. And so we have to keep learning. And he's a man who's had an opportunity to learn. So he's got a lot lot to contribute for the future. He does. And he's a great guest. And Glenn Elmers is a great guest. Glenn, has the soul of politics made it into bookstores yet? Uh. I had not actually checked. Um, you know, there are so few physical bookstores left. Uh, and I actually have I, I bought a house out in West Virginia, and I actually haven't been into D.C. Uh, in, in about a week or so. But I do need to check on that. Uh, there's some good little local bookstores in D.C. that I hope are carrying it. But it's certainly available online. And so I urge everyone, the soul of politics, it's got a forward in it by this fellow named Arn. So you two go back a ways, I gather, and I'll come to my plan in a moment. But, Dr. Arm, when did you first meet uh, uh, Dr. Elmers? Uh, that was in about 1902, I think. <laughs> 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 I don't know, Glenn. Was it in, when did you start graduate school? It was about 25 years ago or so. Um, yeah. So it's, it's yeah, early 90s, I guess. So, yeah, it's been a few years. Okay, these are old friends, and I stress that because the questions I'm about to ask actually follow from a conversation Dr. Arn and I have been having for weeks about uh, Abraham Lincoln and the Lincoln-Douglas debates. They are both taught, both Glenn Elmers and Dr. Arn, by a, bell, a fellow by the name of Harry Jaffa. The subtitle of The Soul of Politics is Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America. And we're going to get there, but we're going to get there through a path that I've plotted painstakingly in my 10-page outline over a couple of weeks. The first question, which I'll let you both define and take a stab at, what is political theory, Dr. Arndt? Uh, yeah, we prefer the name uh, political philosophy because Jeff had published a great essay called The Case Against Political Theory. Uh, 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 philosophy is the love of wisdom. And political philosophy would be the love of wisdom about politics. And politics in any decent philosophy and any classical philosophy is not the highest thing. It's the most urgent and the first thing. And because that philosophy proceeds from 
you know, the the, the uh, it wasn't the way of the classics to announce a grand theory and then work their way down. It was to start with the things you see and know and the things that are claimed, and they're they're always contradictory, and you figure out where the truth is, but the truth is in there among them somewhere, and that activity leads you upwards. And because the most urgent question in philosophy is how shall we live, politics contains the authoritative answers to that question. So you anticipated my second question. I will switch from political theory to political philosophy in deference to Professor Jaffa long ago. Glenn Elmer, what is the most important question that political philosophy seeks to answer? I think Dr. Arn just told us, but I'll ask you that. The most important question on which it is focused. Well, uh, from Socrates onward, it has always been considered what is the best way of life. Um, but that has a political dimension because human beings are social or political animals. And so generally, uh, what is best for us, what leads to human happiness, involves other people. And therefore, the political community always has to be a central concern for anyone seeking uh, that best way of life, that human happiness, that fulfillment. And so politics is, uh, as Aristotle called it, the architectonic science. It is the science or, or approach to understanding that encompasses uh, the greatest field of, of uh, practical action because it concerns itself with the common good of, of all, really, uh, who are pursuing their happiness. So, Dr. Arndt, if you're going to teach a course on political philosophy, with whom do you begin? Where does it start? Uh, Aristotle. Aristotle? Yeah. Well, where does political philosophy begin? Yes. Uh, that begins with Socrates. Okay, uh, I was wondering. You had me, you had me crossed <laughs> up there. Well, you, so it's, it's a, that the, uh, I answered it in the way, you know, a teacher. How do you go about teaching? Well, Aristotle wrote dialectical treatises, and Plato wrote dialogues. And so I, in my life at least, and in my teaching, find Aristotle as a tremendous entry point. You know, and, and it, it, you don't have to read a lot either. If you read the first two chapters of the Nicomachean Ethics, uh, both in book one, I mean, there are ten books and they're divided into chapters, usually about twelve chapters in each. Just the first two chapters, that's about three pages. And then you read the first two pages of Aristotle's Politics, three pages maybe, you've got an introduction to the whole thing. And that's where you start, but political philosophy itself begins with uh, Cicero said this, and it's a famous thing. He said that uh, Socrates called philosophy down from the heavens and made it inquire into the things of men. Uh, Glenn has a brilliant passage in his book where he talks about the Socratic turn. And that Socrates, there's evidence for this turn in Aristophanes. Uh, Socrates, he wrote a derisory play about called The Clouds, in which Socrates is a major character, and he is derided as Socrates for being otherworldly all the time. And, and uh, Socrates, uh, there's a record that Socrates in Plato, that Socrates made a turn in his life because he figured out it's presumptuous to try to figure out what the elements of nature are, what all kinds of things, because if you do that, you're spending your time on that kind of life, and that presumes that you know that's the best kind of life. 
So how's that, Glenn? That's well, pretty well, good. That's let me add to Glenn, and for the first last two minutes of this segment, you write in the Soul of Politics about the Athens-Jerusalem distinction. Larry Arn was just talking about the Athens approach. What's the distinction that you write about? Athens and Jerusalem uh, represent the great alternatives of reason and revelation, which Jaffa emphasized uh, represent different pathways to the ultimate good of the soul, either unrelenting skeptical inquiry, which is philosophy, which is rational inquiry, or the life of piety and pious obedience to God. And both of these represent um, great pinnacles uh, for the human soul, for, for human fulfillment. Um, but they are different. Um, uh, obviously, one depends on faith, one depends on reason, but they complement each other, and they interact in a, ways, in a way that led to what uh, Joppa's teacher Leo Strauss called the great dynamic vitality of Western civilization. So don't go anywhere over the course of this week and next and maybe beyond. I'm beginning at the beginning so that the soul of politics makes sense to you when you pick it up. But the soul of politics is about a lot more than Harry Jaffa and Leo Strauss. It's actually about a course of study for an entire life. And what you heard Dr. Arn say is that it begins with uh, Aristotle and before that, Plato. And I think that's the order, right, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, that is conventionally taught, Dr. Arn? That's right, yeah. And so, so those are the big three. When we come back from break, we'll talk about where does Jerusalem enter into that. Go nowhere except over to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of which are found for Hugh4Hillsdale.com or to Hillsdale.edu if you want all of the videotaped courses on political philosophy, if you want the history of the progressive movement, if you want anything that Hillsdale has to offer, it's all at Hillsdale.edu. And all of these conversations dating back 10 years are found at Hugh4Hillsdale.com. The Soul of Politics, this book, if you're watching on YouTube, is found at Amazon.com. Stay tuned, America. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. If and when news happens anywhere, you'll hear it here first. When Hugh Hewitt continues. back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. I'm holding up the book, The Soul of Politics. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. His friend and colleague, Glenn Elmers, who has written this book, The Soul of Politics. Uh, well, he was a fellow at Hillsdale College. We're talking about the history of political philosophy. Uh, Glenn, let me ask you the next question. Again, I'm building a very Spartan ladder to get people from then to now. What does St. Augustine have to do with Plato? Um, St. Augustine, in a way, uh, represents uh, a good example of what we might call the Jerusalem option, or the, the faith, uh, uh, the religious uh, alternative. Uh, philosophy is, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, skeptical, radical skeptical inquiry, uh, questioning every opinion. And Augustine and the other uh, great fathers of the Church and other religious figures in Western civilization represent um, piety, which is another great avenue, you know, obedience to God, uh, uh, the fulfillment of the commandments. Um, this is another uh, great pillar of Western civilization. And Plato and Augustine or, or other um, of these great figures represent these two alternatives, 
which have uh, been so, so central to the success of Western civilization. And so, Dr. Art, what does St. Thomas Aquinas have to do with Aristotle? Mm, well, uh, Professor Jaffer was deeply interested in that question. He wrote a book called Thomism and Aristotelianism. And because Thomas was the Christian author and saint who did the most to bring Aristotle into the Christian tradition. Uh, and he's very profound. He's uh, uh, Aquinas' commentaries on Aristotle and his own works are tremendous and huge achievements. Uh, Professor Jaffa's book says that ultimately, uh, whatever Thomas Aquinas may have thought, uh, Aristotle and, and Thomas Aquinas and Christianity are not fully compatible. Uh, uh, and the reason is, uh, a sign of the reason is, that pride is a virtue in the, in the ethics of Aristotle and the, and the classical world, and it's the worst sin in Christianity. Uh, he, uh, the book, the book Thomism and Aristotelian is very worth reading. If you're interested in the relationship between reason and revelation, because that's really what it's about, and and uh, I will say that uh, this is sort of a prerogative of a, an old student of somebody. Uh, I've talked to Professor Jaffa many times about that. Once on a tape recording that exists, uh, I mean a, a video, and I said, "So tell me about this uh, inevitable divide between Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle." And Professor Jaffa said, "Well, if I had that book to write over." I would write it somewhat differently. <laughs> he didn't really elaborate, but I will speculate, and then Glenn can tell me if I'm right. Uh, Professor Jaffa came to see that this vibrancy that Glenn uh, described between religion and revelation, and they're different things, by the way, that that, that, that uh, vibrancy is necessary to the preservation of civilization itself, and he thought he saw, Professor Jaffa thought he saw uh, developments in Christi Christianity that showed life and help. Professor Jaffa really liked the moral majority. He liked, he liked the name, you know, the moral majority. That's, you, you know, it was, it was, you remember Jerry Falwell. Yes. And it was the sort of emergence of Christian activism that helped elect Ronald Reagan and take the Senate in that stunning 1980 election. And a lot of sniffy people thought, oh, these people are just so crude. Uh, Jerry Falwell was anything but crude. But uh, Professor Jaffa just welcomed all that. He liked all that and uh, at that time. And so, and he thought, how do you get, especially to see, we, we live in a kind of nihilistic age now. I mean, it's, it's it's violent and dangerous what's going on and it's all in the name of nothing literally and so professor jaffa came to think that uh revelation and reason had a common enemy now nihilism and they should cooperate and they could stand back to back i think benedict as well thought that when we come back from break we'll pick up with the unity or at least the collaboration of Jerusalem and Athens and Reason and Revelation and what happened next with Glenn Elmers, author of The Soul of Politics and Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Stay tuned. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue.
you're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway, and I'm actually very pleased with the way this is unfolding. I'm, I'm exactly one half of one page of my five-page outline done, so I'm not going to finish on time, but it doesn't matter. I'm talking with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Professor Glenn Elmers, Dr. Elmers, is the author of this brand-new book, The Soul of Politics. Uh, Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America. I'm going to come to Jaffa, but I'm setting up the ladder. When we left, we had talked about Plato and Augustine and Aristotle and Aquinas and whether or not they were in tension or whether or not they were collaborators. And we had come to what my teacher, Harvey Mansfield, used to call the break. And Glenn Elmer's when did the modern tradition break with the conversation between Jerusalem and Athens, between Augustine and Plato and Aquinas and Aristotle? When did the big break happen? The big break is usually attributed to a thinker most people have heard of named Niccolo Machiavelli, uh, an Italian political philosopher. Um, uh, Mansfield has written quite a lot about Machiavelli, sort of specialized in Machiavelli. And Machiavelli... Um, in a way, rejected the authority of both pillars of, of what we've been talking about, of reason and revelation. He rejected Aristotle, and he rejected Christianity. Um, he wanted to establish, uh, there's a famous phrase now, uh, he, he started establishing politics on a low but solid basis. That is, get rid of this idea of virtue, get rid of this idea that politics should establish the conditions for happiness, get rid of concerns for the soul, and focus on uh, what politics can do here now to fulfill our, our basic needs. Um, he was reacting in a way, somewhat understandably, uh, to a, a problem that had developed. And this is kind of a long story of what happened with the development of Christianity and Western civilization. And it goes to what Strauss talked about as the, uh, the theological political problem. But Machiavelli's solution to this sort of complicated problem was to redefine politics on a much lower level uh, and dispense with the idea of virtue and happiness, which meant rejecting both the high-minded, the high-minded uh, approach of both uh, Aristotle and Aquinas, of both reason and revelation. So, so Dr. Arndt, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with the practicality of Machiavelli? Why is he so different from everything that went before him? Well, there's a justification for Machiavelli uh, because Italy was in a mess and he was exiled and threatened and the politics were terrible and he thought that that had something to do with the excessive imposition of theory, both Christian and, and political and philosophic, into the affairs of human beings and it left them nothing to do. So he wanted to whip up their spirit, uh, and spiritedness is a major theme in Machiavelli, one that Mansfield himself has some admiration for. Now, what's wrong with it, though? I mean, first of all, these questions persist. In Leo Strauss, who was Harry Jaffa's teacher, there's a great uh, passage in the beginning of a book called The City and Man, and he describes this, this point. 
both philosophy and religion require faith. Religion explicitly. Uh, philosophy, because you have to start at the beginning. And it's a tall mountain to climb to reach a state of wisdom. And there's no guarantee that you can get there or no certainty that anyone ever did. It begins in an act of faith. And, and that means that uh, religion has a larger consistency than philosophy. Now, Strauss was a political philosopher. That means he, he, he spent his time pursuing truth through human reason. He didn't think that was a vain task, but he didn't think it should become an arrogant task. And that's what Machiavellianism lent itself to. And there is an obvious ruthlessness in Machiavelli that, you know, has... And, and if you couple that with the sort of theoretical idea that we should, we should spend our time on the here and now, we shouldn't be building imaginary republics anymore. We should work on our own republic. But that raises the obvious question, which is all about us today with the nihilism of today, and that is, okay, how do we build it? And how do we know that the way we built it is good? So that turn, that, that break, as you say, that is a fundamental fact in human relations. And, you know, Professor Jaffa, Professor Jaffa amended our understanding of that break or the completeness of that break uh, in defense of America. He did, and, and that's mostly what the soul of politics is and where I will get to. But again, I'm trying to make this a ladder for people to understand how we get to Strauss and Jaffa. Uh, out of the Machiavellian ruins and the ruthlessness, I'm glad you used that word, Dr. Arn, because that's what Harvey used to say, virtue and ruthlessness in the same book. How, where did John Locke come from out of this mess, Glenn Elmers? How does he show up? Because he matters quite a lot to us, doesn't he? Sure, he does. He was very influential in the founding. <clears throat> Locke emerges in a way as a very uh, useful to correction to <clears throat> the modern project inaugurated by Machiavelli. <clears throat> he establishes a much more humane basis for politics. He, he inaugurates really important principles like religious toleration. He didn't quite go far enough uh, as far as, say, Jefferson did, but he established very important groundwork um, that the American founding fathers built on to establish constitutionalism and the rule of law and religious liberty. Um, there's some controversy about uh, Locke and Locke's what's, what's sometimes called secret teaching, and we can sort of leave that aside. But, but Locke very straightforwardly established, um, sort of built a, um, on the modern project that Machiavelli inaugurated, a much more solid, humane, um, even noble basis for constitutionalism that was, that was really key for the founders. Now, Dr. Arndt, when you visit any of the framers' homes, and I've been down to Monticello recently, I've been over to, to Madison's house, you'll find a great collection of old books, and there'll be all the books we've mentioned and a few more, Montesquieu, etc. On whom do our founders, particularly Hamilton and Madison, most rely from all these names we've been talking about? Well, I, our, our, my, our friend and my colleague Tom West has written a lot about that. You know, I, Montesquieu is very important because Montesquieu wrote uh, much and clearly on the separation of powers. They don't really cite Locke all that much, although everybody knew about him. 
and and his book, the uh, uh, the the second the second treatise of Locke, the two treatises of Locke, they were well known, and this nihilism that Glenn hints at, and that I too won't go into, is is evident if it's evident in a book called An Essay Concerning Human Understanding, and that was not around in America, but to summarize what they thought, Jefferson, you know, who had this tremendous gift of articulation, greatest, in my opinion, among the founders. And when he got to writing on something, it just became powerful and beautiful and clear, right? And he says about the writing of the Declaration of Independence that he he consulted the element, elemental books of public right. And then, I can't, I haven't memorized the exact list, but it includes... What? Glenn, tell me, Plato, Aristotle, Aristotle, Sidney, Locke, Locke and Sidney. Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, and Sidney. So two ancients and yeah. two moderns. There you go. And that's and see, Cicero uh, represents a kind of culmination of classical thought, and he's the first one to use the the expression "natural law" as a theme. And so there's a culmination there. And then Locke and Sidney, those are the most decent parts of modern philosophy. And so that, that's Jefferson's mind. And you, you talk about library. It's thought that Thomas Jefferson owned, <laughs> excuse me, every book and had probably read them. And, and you know, you can't do that anymore because there are too many people like Glenn Helmers and me writing books. Yes. But, uh, but uh, it's... Uh, you know, and you know the same thing was said of Montesquieu. I've been in his library a couple of times, and it's it's just gorgeous. The books are gone now; they went somewhere. Todd Jefferson's went to the Library of Congress. Yes, but uh, you know that there was a time then in in hailing distance of here when an educated person could have an active life and have been said to have read what there was to read. I remember when when I was younger, you gave me a pass or the instructions on how to get into the reading room at the British Library, which is probably the most majestic place in the world to read. But Monticello is not behind it. My point being that when our framing came about, when this country was founded, I believe it is true. And Glenn, tell me if it isn't. The framers attempted to reconcile the old, the ancients with the break and that which Machiavelli had introduced. Was, is that true? Is that what they tried to do? Yes, they drew on classical wisdom and adapted that, in part, classical wisdom, but also, you know, wise uh, writings by, by modern authors, and adapted that in a practical way to their own circumstances. I just want to jump in here and make one point about, I'm not contradicting Larry, because Larry knows this as well or better than I do, but the, the, this issue about theory, and it is true, Joffre wrote a case called The Argument Against Political Theory. And that's, there's two errors in politics. And one is to treat politics as if it were natural science, as if human beings were just uh, mechanisms, right? As if we're just inanimate objects, and you can apply, you know, so-called laws of nature. And, and this is what Hobbes and Machiavelli and others did. They tried to create a kind of mechanistic approach to politics, as if human beings are just cogs. And that's one error, and that's the overly theoretical or scientific error. But the other error is to get is to lose sight of the permanent altogether. And one reason these old books are important is because there are permanent truths, especially about human nature. If there is such a thing as human nature, that's permanent, right? There are transcendent truths. And so it's the combination of understanding this permanent transcendence 
along with the particular that holds the secret to understanding politics. Don't go anywhere. More of the Hillsdale Dialogue right ahead. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Hugh Hewitt Show. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. This is part one of a conversation between Dr. Larry Arn and his longtime friend and colleague, Glenn Elmers. Glenn has written a new book, The Soul of Politics, that I wish I'd had when I was an undergraduate years ago. It's a map, and I'm basically outlining the map, and then the map gives rise to a study which will last a lifetime. After the framing occurs, gentlemen, some other people start writing. In fact, they start writing before it if you refer to Hegel. Hegel is actually dead by 1770. But Hegel comes along, then Marx comes along, who dies in 1843, and then Heidegger comes along. Larry Arn, what do those three guys and their apostles do to the grand project of the framing? Uh, well, they screw up the works. <laughs> they do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, dang, dang those guys. Yes. Uh, well, they, you know, what I think is, is that... Uh, they took a hint or a direction from Machiavelli, and they fell under the charm of power. I, I'm, I'm talking about a motive here. What specifically they did was they took the common sense observation that we are much affected by our circumstances, by how we grow up and by the time in which we live and the place in which we live, and they make that an account of everything. And that raises a logical problem for them. You know, Marx is the most systematic of them, and he's got this detailed, you know, first this happens, you know, and, and you know, first there's masters and serfs, and then there, you know, and that leads to conflict, and the next one is, is the dialectical process. And, like, the people who reduced uh, the Soviet Union to despotism and despotized half the world, they thought that history was a science that had to work out according to these rules. <laughs> and and then you have to, you know, and, and because, uh, sure enough, we're so affected by our circumstances, and in, in, in uh, uh, Marx's case, what we do for a job, that it forms our consciousness, which is a term of art. It, it doesn't mean what, what we think or our sense of right and wrong. It means the sort of climate in our mind, that's set by these things. Well, they, they do that, and, and there has to be, you know, if you believe Aristotle, which I do, there has to be some love or good intention behind that. And the love is that we've been victims of circumstances, but now we know that, and that changes everything. Now we could get control of the circumstances. Uh, Hegel, who's one of the most profound in every sense, including the German sense, and that means complicated. Um, he, he, I once heard the expression from one of our friends, Chris Flannery, this is German in its profundity. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of work here. Uh, he, he, he has a poetic expression that summarizes all this. The owl of Minerva flies at dusk. And that means at the end of history... Now, at last, you can see everything. And if you can see everything, you can take control of everything. Uh, my favorite American crazy man is a man named Frank Goodnow. 
And he's in our Constitution reader. A lot of progressives are in there. We read those guys. Everybody does at Hillsdale. And, and uh, he was a teacher. He was, he, he was one of the founders of the American Political Science Association. He was the president of, what, John Hopkins, and he taught at Columbia with John Dewey. And he writes this paragraph that's just awesome, just blisteringly bad. He says, we teachers take ourselves too seriously sometimes because we think that we're teaching students things that will guide their lives. I'm paraphrasing now. Forever. But in fact, their future opinions are going to be set by the economic conditions that prevail at the time. Do you see how that bankrupts the classroom as an experience? Sure does. Yep. But it also directs the attention somewhere else. What about all these circumstances that are playing on us? Can't we get control of all of them and become our own creators? And that's and a so, it's, and it's so to, to put a cap on the hour, uh, if Lincoln depended on Jefferson and Jefferson depended upon a mixture of the ancients and the moderns, uh, who did Woodrow Wilson rely on Glenn Elmers? So Larry already mentioned Hegel, who is this tremendously influential German thinker who inaugurated this school of thought or this dogma you might call historicism which is uh, the idea that history unfolds according to a series of laws, and this is what leads to Marx and the Marxist historical dialectic. And we can know those laws. And history is progressive. It moves in a certain direction. And what Hegel and Marx and the progressives took from that is, well, if we can know the direction of history and if we can know the laws that govern that direction of history, and once we master that, we can have perfect knowledge. It's very hubristic, right? It leads to the idea that, okay, we know the direction of history. Therefore, since we know the, the scientific laws that govern uh, the movement of the world, uh, we no longer need limits on government, right? We can control all human things because we know how history is unfolding. And this progressive conceit is the root of tremendous, tremendous problems. Oh, my goodness. And we're, next week, we're going to come into him on page 12 of The Soul of Politics. Glenn Elmer's right. Within less than a generation after the Union victory over the Confederacy, American political scientists, many of them who had studied in Germany or read books, had led us far astray from the Declaration of Independence. absolutely positively need the truth this is where you turn this is the hugh hewitt show